0: Turn to Acts chapter 1. What, Michael? You're starting over? Yep. We are going to, and you're going to have to, if you're a note taker, I'm sorry. Uh, We are going to go through a lot of information this morning. We're going to hit a lot of uh, passages, a lot of scripture. We're not going to spend a lot of time in, in any scripture but one, really, uh, but we are going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Carol, is the computer hung up again? Frozen up? I can't hear you, so something else, okay. Uh, no problem, she'll get that figured out. Something else, she said, so might need some encouragement. Uh, the computer, I mean, just kick it, um. You could use, you could do that with machines. You can't do that with electronics. It doesn't work like it used to, does it? Chapter one, uh, we're going to look at. We're, we're going to look. Actually, we're going to go all the way through Acts this morning. We're going to go back and, and review some things, uh, because we're at a critical juncture for Paul. Our our focal verse is going to be nineteen, chapter nineteen, verse twenty one but we've, we're going to have to go back and remind ourselves of some things. Um, but to to open it up this morning, sadly, our, our past success does not guarantee our future, uh, future obedience. Um, again, I wish I could tell you that I'm as good as Sunday school makes me look. But if you are in Chronicles, if you're doing the study that's working through Chronicles for six weeks, King Asa, you studied this morning about King Asa coming off of 35 years of peace because uh, he had been obedient, and then suddenly ruining years after that because he was disobedient. And it's amazing, when we look at what God has done in the past, we should be able to go from those successes right into obedience and more success but we tend not to. I mean, how, can we, how, how can we step from God's great work directly into disobedience to his clear instruction? It, it should boggle our mind that we can do that. Paul knew how to do it, though, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Luke has actually been setting us up for chapter nineteen, verse twenty one ever since the beginning of Acts, but particularly when Stephen gave his sermon in Chapter Seven. Stephen clarified uh, uh, if if I can use the Star Wars terminology, the light side and the dark side. He made it clear the the two different sides of what was going on. Now, for Stephen, we see God active. And God denied. And he, he covers that in his message. He starts talking about the patriarchs and, and what they did and how that was God active in their lives. And he talks about the disobedience, the rebellion of Israel against God. And he goes through their entire history working up to the Messiah. But, but what he does in that sermon is not only give us a trajectory as we move through Acts. He gives us a, uh, a clearer understanding of what has already happened in Acts. Uh, God active we see in Acts chapters 1 and 2 Jesus says that they're going to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel they are clearly going to take the gospel to somebody not just Jews who are spread around the world but to everybody Stephen's clear on that in his message. There are no, going to be no longer any language barriers. If you were concerned. Jesus says. God says. Through the Holy Spirit. If you were concerned about taking the message to people who didn't understand you. Don't be concerned about that anymore. Then we get to Acts chapter 6 and 7. And we see Stephen's sermon. He talks about God being active. We see the uh, choosing of the deacons. The seven in chapter 6. And God being active in that selection. And in their ministry to the widows and uh, the, those who needed help. We, we see in Acts 8 that the message, and feel free to follow along as we move through this uh, in your scripture. In Acts 8, we see movement toward the Gentiles. We see Philip in Samaria, whose Samaritans aren't Gentiles, but they're getting close. We see Philip witnessing and someone being saved uh, that is Ethiopian, but a proselyte to judaism so we see that movement toward the gentiles god is active we see uh saul being called to the gentiles on the damascus road in chapter nine god is extremely active jesus appears to paul and says paul why are you so stubborn why are you doing the these things that why are you persecuting me god is active in his life Acts chapter 10, we see an apostolic blessing on the Gentile mission. Eventually, uh, we see the Cornelius vision of Peter. Peter argues three times with God. I can't eat this food. I can't eat this food. Uh, Okay, I'll eat this food. Um, And he realizes this is how we are to reach the the Gentiles. The, uh, The apostles affirm this in chapter 11. Gentile uh, salvation is defended, and we begin to see a movement toward Antioch in eleven nineteen, um, or we talk about that more uh, fully in eleven nineteen and following. And Antioch becomes the mission hub for the for the mission work of the the, the people of God. That was all God active, but Luke, being an incredible writer, because what we're looking at here is how Luke was writing, his na- narrative purpose when he wrote these things. We also see throughout this, God resisted. Chapters 1 and 2 were great, God, uh, God active. Chapters 3 and 4, God is resisted. We see the Jerusalem leadership's response to healing the lame man. They won't have it, and they tell him, don't do this anymore, when Peter and John are arrested, do not preach in this name. And they say, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to continue to preach in the name of Jesus. And the church grew anyway, but Jerusalem leadership is resisting God. Then slipped in here between that and uh, more persecution is Ananias and Sapphira. So we actually see the church resisting God. Members of the church resisting God in Ananias and Sapphira. We move to chapter 6. We we move through another trial. Now Stephen is stoned for his message of God active and God resisted. Saul is standing there approving that. See, Jesus asks in chapter 9, why are you persecuting me? Why were you standing there approving that? We get to chapter 11, Acts 11, and we see in verse 19 of chapter 11 that though the... uh, Believers had spread out in chapter nine, uh, 11 19. They are only sharing the gospel with Jews. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Again, literary analysis. why Narrative uh, understanding. Why did Luke put this here? Why didn't he tell us way back in chapter 8 after the stoning of Stephen that when they went out they were only spreading the gospel to the Jews? He's making a point here that even after they all agreed... In chapter 11, salvation of the Gentiles is defended. The apostles say, good, you're right, let's do that. He's pointing out they still didn't get it. Yes, this is a past act, but it's an example of what was still going on. Luke was an incredible writer. And he's letting them know God is still being resisted, even after everybody agreed. And then in chapter 12, James is killed, Peter is put in jail, And we see all levels of Jewish uh, Jewish society right up to uh, Herod, the, the king, the ruler of the Jews, rejecting the Messiah. And what should ring through our ears as we move through this is Gamaliel's advice. His warning in 539 where he said, you may even be found fighting against God. He said there have been pretenders come along a bunch of times and we let it alone and it died out because there was nothing there. But we need to be careful because we could be found fighting against God. Gamaliel, who was Saul's teacher, Saul should have had this ringing in his ears, do not be found fighting against God. We move through Acts Chapters thirteen and fourteen, we see the preparation for the mission field. We see his first missionary journey. We talked about when we worked through it how uh, they sent him off in Antioch with a prayer meeting and a commissioning service, and everybody was excited. And he met success in what was, is now Turkey, uh, the region of Galatia and and other areas. And we, 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 we rejoice in that and churches are planted and, and good things happen on that first missionary journey. And then we get to Paul's second missionary journey. And we could have put missionary journey in quotes at least for the first half. In chapter 15, verse 40, we get a, not a commissioning service, not a prayer service. We get the folks in Antioch saying, well, basically, God be with you. This is what you're going to do go ahead. And for the first half of his missionary journey, he fights the spirit. He's already fought with Barnabas, and we don't have any indication in the scripture that God told him to send Barnabas away, told them to split it up, told him to go on this type of missionary journey. He fights the spirit the first half. Uh, He's hindered by the Holy Spirit, scripture says, from Asia, from turning left and going uh, southwest into Ephesus is probably where he wanted to go. He's not permitted, the scripture says, into Bithynia by the Spirit of Jesus—a uh, a phrase that, or uh, grammar, first of all, that shows repeated attempts to go into. Bithynia, and my apologies for spelling Bithynia wrong on the screen, Uh, repeated attempts. He was arguing with Jesus about going. I should go there. I should go there. I should go there. And Jesus is saying, no, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. No, you shouldn't. And this is the only use of spirit of Jesus as a phrase in in the entire uh, uh, series of Luke Acts. He uses this phrase, spirit of Jesus. Paul's arguing. Arguing with the spirit of Jesus about what he is supposed to do. And then he gets a vision, a second vision now. uh, The Damascus Road vision. Jesus coming and saying, why are you persecuting me? A second vision where uh, the Macedonian man saying, come over. That puts him back on the right track. It took a vision. Not an inkling, not a leading because he argued with those. It took a vision. And then we get to the Ephesus ministry. Everything wraps up in Corinth. He goes back home for a little while, and we move to Ephesus, the third journey that really wasn't much of a journey except to Ephesus. And Ephesus is Paul's crown jewel of ministry effectiveness. Everything that can go right does. Even the things that look like they're not going to go right, go right. Everything, I mean, if you want the perfect ministry Uh, example, the two years in Ephesus is it. Nowhere else does Paul lay hands and the Holy Spirit comes on him. Nowhere else does he do the kind of miracles. Nowhere else does the reputation of God, right? We've been talking about last two weeks, our extraordinary God, his extraordinary power, his extraordinary uh, reputation, and his extraordinary impact. We've been talking about God's extraordinary, our extraordinary God based on what we see in Paul. And this morning we see our extraordinary disobedience based again on what we see in Paul. Why does his ministry in Ephesus suddenly collapse? Because if you turn to chapter 19, verse 21, really we get an explanation in verse 24 and following but I want to look at verse 21 after these events Paul resolved by the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem the beginning of verse 23 about that time there was a major disturbance about the way why does it suddenly collapse because what was going spectacularly was derailed by disobedience and I know some of you came to me after I preached the sermon on the beginning of his second missionary journey and said, I don't know about that whole Paul being disobedient thing. I know, that's why I'm spending my whole time on it today, to point it out. See, Gamaliel's words still ring in our ears and should have been ringing in Paul's ears. Be careful that you do not be found fighting against God and we have as readers now thanks to the way Luke wrote a front row seat to Paul's extraordinary disobedience why was it extraordinary it was just one more thing Paul was a sinner just like us right the correct answer is yes there's only one perfect person in the Bible Jesus ever Jesus. So we have to see Paul's imperfections. But this is just one more thing. Why was it extraordinary? Because he was coming off this extraordinary example and work of God in Ephesus for, the, for two years. No problems, no beatings, no fights. Just salvation after salvation after salvation to the point that people were just hearing about Paul. And, get, and the message he had. And coming to him to get saved. Acts 19 21 through 23, after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. Verse 21 is our focus. I included 22 and 23 in there to get you to see that this major disturbance was coming. And at this major disturbance, there's no more ministry in, in Ephesus. Ministry in Ephesus is over. What do we see in verse 21? After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it is necessary For me to see Rome as well. In 21 we see first of all a personal decision. My translation that was on the screen. If you're using Christian Standard Bible. It says it too. It says resolved by the capital S spirit. But a better translation or an alternate translation. Is resolved in his spirit. No capital S. It can go either way grammatically. Except it kind of can't. For one thing, it is in Greek, the middle voice. We don't have that in English. We don't have a middle voice. But we translate that for himself. So the, the, the voice, the, the way he, that uh, Luke put this, he is saying, Paul, for himself, decided. For himself, made up his mind. And in fact, that use of the word, that use of the middle voice in that phrase, resolved in his spirit, is an idiom. It's like, cat got your tongue, or uh, grouchy as a sore-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I don't know why I'm picking on cats today. It's just, you know, what's coming to mind. Uh, This idiom, this phrase, means to make up one's mind. So when somebody said, resolved in the spirit, what they meant was, he made up his mind he decided. So grammatically, it's fairly clear, Paul made this decision. It is a personal decision. Luke, on the other hand, when he writes, and when there's a sentence where it might be questionable about whether the spirit should be capitalized or not, Luke is very clear on what he's talking about. See, there are no capital letters in Greek in these Greek manuscripts. So uh, lowercase spirit, uppercase spirit, there's no way of knowing that in Greek. So Luke will always, if it's ambiguous, if you could read it and not be sure, he will always put Holy Spirit. Now we're going to look at here in a few minutes, a time when he did not use Holy Spirit, but we're gonna show, I'm going to show you why it wasn't ambiguous. Here it would be ambiguous, but it's not because he didn't say Holy Spirit. And then the third reason we see that this was a personal decision on Paul's part is because there is a word, a verb, that Luke always uses when it is a divine necessity, when it is a command by God, and that verb is must, or in Greek, dei, D-E-I. And in this case, he uses must for Rome. He does not use must for Jerusalem. Paul decided in himself to go to Jerusalem and he said I must go to Rome. Even Paul knew what God's command was in that case. Flip over to chapter 20 verses 22 to 23. And now Paul speaking and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem compelled by the Spirit not knowing what I will encounter there except that in every town Listen to this, y'all. Except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. Paul is going to rationalize his trip to Jerusalem in these passages. Even in Paul's statement here, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled in my spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit. Look how Luke differentiates, differentiates here. He does not put compelled by the Holy Spirit in the first part, but he says, Paul says, in every town the Holy Spirit warns me. There is no verb for the divine necessity. There is no holy to clarify which spirit at the beginning there is, but there is a holy in the second spirit. So Paul, uh, Luke is making clear to us which is which. And Paul is uh, no longer having these miraculous rescues and protections that he's had up to now. No longer is the Holy Spirit saying, I will take care of you. No, matter, no longer is he saying, speak and it will be okay and, and you don't have to worry about things. No, now the Holy Spirit is saying, you will be bound up. You will be in chains and afflictions. It's funny, in verse 22, what he really says is, I was bound in my spirit, and now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, bound in my spirit. But the Holy Spirit keeps telling me I'm going to be bound when I get there. He missed the irony of his own statement. But what are these miraculous rescues? Well, just to remind you, in Lystra, he was stoned. Chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, he came back to life. He was near death. Everybody thought he was dead. They put him on the trash heap thinking he was dead. He was put in jail, and in 1626, an earthquake occurred to let him and Silas escape. He was promised safety in Corinth in verses 18 and chapter 18, verses 19 and 9 and 10, and told, do not worry about what's going to happen with, in this case, Gallio and the decision he was going to make in court. I've got it. I've taken care of this. And then again, he just came off this incredible power of God realized and witnessed. In Ephesus. And now that's all going to stop. The Holy Spirit has said you will be bound in chains and you will see afflictions in Jerusalem. I've said over and over and over as we've worked through Acts that not all oppression and obstacles are evidence of disobedience. And I stand by that statement. I also stand by the next one. Some are. Some oppression and some obstacles are evidence of our disobedience. And it is the Holy Spirit that will make clear to us which is which. Chapter 21, verse 4, and verses 11 and 12. We see indirect commands disobeyed. And I only call these indirect commands because they came through uh, a mediator, through a prophet, through other people. Paul shows up. Uh, he's uh, talking to the, the folks um, in, I believe he's in Troas, Tyre, he's in Tyre, and he says, we sought out disciples there and stayed seven days, verse four, through the spirit they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, some of you are going to ask, well, Michael, how do we know that's not their spirit? In their spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I am so glad you Asked that question in this case spirit is not ambiguous disciples is plural spirit is singular if it had been them speaking by their spirit it would have been just the way i said it the disciples spoke by their spirits and we would have known that wasn't the holy spirit because it would have been plural but in this case it's the disciples spoke by the spirit singular there's only one spirit in this case. So it's not ambiguous. It's not ambiguous which spirit is which. And the command is not ambiguous. Paul was clearly told not to go. Through the spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And, and the grammar here implies more, argue, uh, more arguing. They told him over and over and over not to go to Jerusalem. And he over and over and over said, well, I've got to. And literally that not to go to Jerusalem, the the phrase is not to step foot in. Again, it's not ambiguous. It's not, okay, just don't, don't go to the temple when you get there. Or don't do this when you get there. It's don't go inside the walls of Jerusalem. Don't go there at all. Jump to verse 11 of chapter 22. Uh, Rather, 21, sorry. Chapter 21, verse 11. Agabus, who is a proven prophet, who is the one that prophesied of a famine that was coming to Jerusalem, and they began to take a collection for those churches. He saved people's lives because of his prophecy, because of his connection to the Lord. In verse 11, he came to us. It says, Agabus came to us. Luke is talking about, I saw this with my own two eyes. He came to us, he took Paul's belt, he tied his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Agabus uses some phrases here that should have gotten Paul's attention being the scholar of the Old Testament that he was. When he says, thus says in some of your translations or in mine, this is what the Holy Spirit says, that is primarily a formula of judgment in the Old Testament. Most of the time when an Old Testament prophet said, thus says the Lord, what's coming after ain't good. It is judgment on the people he's talking to. He uses the phrase, he doesn't say Paul, he doesn't use his name. He says, in this way, uh, the Jews will bind the man. This is an intentionally impersonal confrontation. What it should bring to mind is David and Nathan. When Nathan tells this story about the, the, the king who had many, many sheep, and he goes to the uh, guy living next door and takes his one lamb, the family pet, and slaughters it for a meal and David is indignant. Well, bring him here and we'll kill him. And Nathan says, you are the man. That the man phrase is a, an intentionally ambiguous, as he used it throughout his prophecy of David, the man, the man, a man, a man, the man. And everybody knew, by the end, who the man was. There's no question here. And that's not a, also, that's not a positive uh, story. Right, Nathan's not saying, and you're a good man. That's not what Nathan's saying to David. That's not what Agabus is saying here. Verse 12, literally everybody is saying, don't go. When we heard this, when we heard this, Luke, again, when we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke and all of those around him, Around them, we're telling him not to go over and over and over. Grammatically, this is intense. We were begging, we were pleading, we were screaming, we were crying, we were doing everything we could rhetorically to get him not to go. And they repeat almost word for word exactly what the Holy Spirit said through Agabus in 21.4. Not to go to Jerusalem. Not to go up to Jerusalem. Do not step foot in Jerusalem. You might say it's a coincidence that they use the same phrase, or maybe you'd say it's not a coincidence. Of course, they heard Agabus say it, so they're going to say it the same way. That's possibly true, but Luke intentionally records it this way to make clear that everybody knew he was not supposed to go except Paul. And we get echoes of the Antioch church in 1540 because... Uh, they, they say in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 14 of, of chapter 21, Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Same thing the Antioch sa- church said at the beginning of the second missionary journey. It's up to God now. God be with you. But we're not done yet. Turn to chapter 22. Verses 17 through 21. He's gotten to Jerusalem and it's been a complete disaster. There's no evangelistic success. Nobody gets saved, no healings. no no, nothing. No reputation of the Lord bringing people in, no book burnings, no, no bridge burnings of people's past. There, there's, there's nothing. It is a disaster in Jerusalem. And then we're told, Luke has carefully kept this hidden from us until now, that Paul had received a vision in Jerusalem right after the Damascus Road, back years before. Luke, why didn't you tell us this when it happened? Why didn't you tell us chronologically? Because he wasn't interested in chronology, he was interested in proving a point. Luke saved it until now to show Paul's disobedience, to give us a stronger impact to tell us, you doubt Paul was disobedient? Let me tell you what God told him personally way back right after the Damascus Road. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to pull out a couple of points because we're going to preach on this later on down the road. He says, leave Jerusalem, they won't accept you. That's what he tells Paul after the Damascus road, after he's gone up and he's visited some of the apostles, shown himself to him, he has this vision in the temple, leave Jerusalem, they won't accept you. And Paul argues. And I think now we have the third situation of Paul arguing with God or his people. He argues that his testimony be enough. Lord, they know what I used to be, they're going to think this is a great testimony. They're going to think this is wonderful. Just think of all the people that are going to be saved because of my testimony. And God makes it clear. He says, Go to the Gentiles. Verse 21 of chapter 22. He said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul has a single focus and calling one job. One job, Paul. The Gentiles. And then if you turn over to chapter 3, maybe you don't even have to turn over, verse 11, we get one more vision for Paul. One more vision of God coming to him and saying something. And this vision, once again, puts him back on track. Chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to to testify in Rome. This this vision puts him back on track. Now, it's interesting that that the Spirit said, um, as you have testified for me, um, his testifying has been minimal, to say the least. He does say, keep courage, have courage, but there's no promise of care or ease. There's no promise of a miraculous earthquake to get him out of prison. Matter of fact, he's going to uh, spend two more years in prison in Jerusalem. And then it's going to be a difficult journey to Rome after that. No promise or care, of care or ease. He says, the Lord says, as you have testified in Jerusalem, as in Jerusalem. It's interesting, that's a condition. He doesn't say you testified in Jerusalem, now you're going to testify in Rome. He says, as you, in the same way you've been testifying, in the same circumstance you've been testifying in Jerusalem, you're going to testify in Rome. What was the circumstance? Prison, chains, bound. God's telling him, you will be bound in chains and as a prisoner in Rome. It is not what it could have been. Rome will not be what it would have been if you had left Ephesus An incredible position uh, to springboard ministry from. If you had gone from there to Rome, things would have been different, we can assume. But because of disobedience, now you will go to Rome just like I told you to. But now you'll go in chains. And Luke is now back to using the verb of divine necessity. It is necessary. You must testify in Rome. Rome is now a divine necessity, and it will happen. I told you if you were taking notes, I'm sorry. Because we're done working through Acts. Paul had one mission. He had one job. To reach Gentiles. His heart was for his his people. He's going to say when he writes a letter to Rome... He's going to tell them, if I could give up my own salvation for my own people, I would. How many of you this morning would give up your eternity with Jesus so someone else could could have an eternity with Jesus? Don't raise your hand. That is incredible. That was his heart for his people. And I guarantee you, God loved Paul's heart for his people. But that was not Paul's calling. That was not what he was supposed to do. He had a calling for to reach Gentiles. It was his own desires that led him to disobedience. It was his own desires that led him to Jerusalem. And and, and Luke never tells us why he wants to go to Jerusalem. He never mentions it. Now Paul does in his letters. His letters show that Jerusalem was all about the collection that they had been taking over the years for the church in Jerusalem. Paul had a wonderful idea and, and the collection was great, and anybody could have taken that collection, but Paul wanted to take that collection. It was a good idea, but that was not his calling. That was not what he was supposed to do. It was good, but it was not the great. And he substituted good for great. And so, Paul was then forcibly taken to Rome, in chains, bound, on a sh- ship, surrounded by... Guards and centurions and, and and a mess all the way there, but being forcibly taken to Rome was actually an act of grace, because the reality is Paul could have been dropped at this point. God could have said, "Paul, I'm done with you. You were my missionary to the Gentiles, and you did that, but now it's no longer for you to do. Rome's not yours anymore. I'm going to use somebody else. I'm going to use." Priscilla and Aquila. I'm going to use Apollos. He could have used any number of people. Paul was not, as we talked about, Paul wasn't the only uh, uh, knife in the drawer. There are a lot of tools that could be used to share the gospel. But, Jesus, but God forcibly takes him to Rome and he finishes his calling, but possibly not in the way he intended to or could have been. Folks, the church has one mission to make disciples. That is our calling. That is the only thing we are told to do. Everything else we do is merely a tool to make disciples. Nearly a way, nearly, merely a method, but they should all have the goal and the purpose of making disciples. And it is disobedience that gets in the way of making those disciples. Every time we fight over something that has no value to the mission, we're disobedient. When we make mountains out of molehills and it interrupts the discipleship call of the church, we are disobedient. Every time we see God working and we ignore it, we are disobedient. We're, we're Paul. We are Maybe we're Saul at that point. We are seeing God resisted, not God active. Every time we ignore the messenger calling us back to our purpose, we're disobedient. Every time. Every time scripture says do and we don't, we're disobedient. Every time the message is redirect and we do not redirect, we're disobedient. And the reality is, God may break, chain, imprison any and every church, including us, until we have no choice but to obey. God may do things that we do not want to see in order to get us to do what we wanted. I would remind you of my testimony, and we talked about it in Sunday School this morning, our testimony of disobedience to God uh, back in 2003 when we didn't go where we were supposed to go at the time. And I don't have time to do it. But know that I know personally and for years experienced the repercussions of being disobedient when God has blessed in the past. When I've seen obedience be blessed and then I decide, no, I'm going to go my own way, I know what happens. And sometimes he will break us until we get that fixed. But the other option, and it is purely God's sovereign will to decide which, he might remove his hand from us and deem us unwilling and unfit to carry the mission. That's what the seven letters to the seven churches, one of them being Ephesus, is all about. Do not stray so far that I am going to remove that I have to remove my lap and stand, and you are no longer a tool in, in, the, in the tool chest. You are no longer a church for me. He might remove his hand. So let us pray that by his grace and mercy, that God breaks us and doesn't leave us he can use a broken pot a broken vessel so much better than he can use a proud whole one and he will break us to get what he wants from us or he will leave us and we will die let us pray that he breaks us and doesn't leave us and see the beauty is brokenness can be a great situation Brokenness can be a blessing. Brokenness can be a new start. It's it's our three circles, right? It's it's where we sometimes start with our three circles. We start with brokenness. And brokenness is what we experience. but, But we know we're broken because we know God's design. This is the way God wanted it. This is how God wanted life to be. And we sin and we break it and we mess it up. And anytime time we sin, we are going against God's design. And as individuals, we sin and we go against God's design. And that brokenness just compounds upon itself and gets worse and worse. Every time we think by our strength, by our ability, we can fix it. And we think we can even save ourselves. And we have to understand that the only answer to the brokenness is not our idea, not our plans, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he was, uh, lived a perfect life, that he was crucified, buried, and on the third day he rose again to prove his victory over death. And if we have faith, if we believe in that Jesus and we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just and he will save us. And then we begin to recover and pursue God's design. We see his work in our lives again and what can be. And we hear His voice, and we we now are obedient and we follow him instead of disobedient and kicking against him or as Gamaliel said, we are found fighting against God. May we as a church, may we as individuals, and may you as a believer or an unbeliever heed the call this morning to no longer fight against God but submit to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your call to obedience. Lord, thank you for the woodshed you sometimes take us to to get our attention, Lord. And if it is your will to break us individually, corporately, to do something in our lives that we think will just absolutely stink and yet it is exactly what you need to do to get your will out of us, Lord, then do us. Bind us, break us, imprison us, and forcibly take us where you need us to go, if that is your will. And Lord, use the brokenness that we may experience to return to you, and to see the beauty of your design. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you hear the message this morning, and maybe you see the brokenness in your own lives, you would like to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you would like to experience that wholeness, and return to God's design. If that's what you're feeling this morning and you still have questions, Tom will be over here to my right, I will be over here to my left. You can come and talk to us about that. But maybe, as the song we sang right before the message says, maybe you just need to come to this altar. It's not an altar, it's a stage. But maybe you need to make an altar out of this where you give something to God and you leave it there. If you'd like us to pray for you, that'd be great. We will do that. Maybe you have other decisions to make. Maybe they're private, maybe they're public. But whatever it is, as we sing this morning and as we stand, you respond as you do business with God today.